Happy Monday, everybody. How's it going? Happy Monday, Joe. It's going well. Welcome, Andrew. Andrew, hello. Thanks, Thanks guys. Great to be here. Good to have you here. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's awesome. Yeah, cool. Yeah, I think we... Um, I've seen you on LinkedIn forever, and then uh, we... Um, I don't know, connected, and I'm like, you'd be awesome on the show. So, so here we are. Uh, for people who don't know who you are, do you want to give a quick intro? Yeah. Hey, everyone. I'm uh, Andrew Padilla. Uh, my background is in software engineering. Uh, most of my career has been basically in uh, working for data management companies or independent consulting in that space, uh, and currently uh, doing independent consulting. And uh, uh, one of my main focuses, I think, of the topic we'll at least start with today is is the topic around open data and what we can learn from that um, in perhaps the enterprise space. But we can go wherever you guys like. Let's see what happens. Yeah, wherever we like. Yeah, let that be how it is. We'll, we'll uh, probably cover a bunch of stuff. By the way, uh, so for the audience out there, Matt's camera's off because he's uh, at a hotel with a questionable Wi-Fi bandwidth. So... Mm -hmm. Yeah, so hopefully my my audio doesn't freeze, but we'll see. Let me know if you can't hear me. Sounds just fine. Just keep it that way. Um, so anyway, yeah. So uh, you know, the the title of this is uh, data collaboration for the outside in. Um, and so yeah, what, what's on your mind with this, Andrew? Yeah. So um, as I mentioned, I, I started doing uh, consulting about three or four years ago, and one of the first customers I came across, I did a, co a local conference here on metadata. Uh, in metadata management. And uh, I was approached after the conference by uh, somebody who worked in the community and he was working with this group uh, that was trying to um, provide uh, open water metadata for the state of New Mexico. And so that intrigued me and I started talking to the folks there and, and then got on board doing some consulting, helping them with their engineering tasks, right? And uh, and I just found, you know, it fascinating all the, the challenges that they have in offering open data to, you know, a spectrum of users in the community. Like they actually don't necessarily know who the users are. And so it creates some unique and, and some might say intractable, intractable problems. Um, and uh, I think there's a lot to be learned for solving that problem and bringing it hence from the outside into the enterprise. And I, and I and I guess that's kind of where I get getting the title from. Mm -hmm. yeah. Interesting. Why, why do you think uh, open data? Um, what, what what do you think are some of the challenges around it? Why 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 is this hard? Yeah, uh, good question. There's there's a number of challenges. Um, you know, one of them is that you know you have a number of different types of personas there, and you don't necessarily know who they are, um, and, and so. Um, the feedback loop there sometimes is non-existent. You don't always know who your consumers are. Um, you, you don't necessarily know what standards are in place that are similar to yours. And so how do you solve that problem? I'll give you an example. In New Mexico, we have our own standards around the same types of concepts, yet the U.S. Geological Survey also has their own dealing with the same types of data. And then, then there are other nonprofit organizations that have their own data collection. So in the end, the user just wants data around, in this case, you know, a certain geo geographical location. They don't really care where it comes from. And so that's a unique problem. How do I get data that I'm interested in for a geolocation? I don't care where it comes from. So that has a lot of implications in architecture, et cetera. But I, I find that mm. fascinating. And how do you make it consistent? Um, 
another challenge in open data is there's not a bi-directional uh, uh, feedback necessarily. A lot of it in, in this most simplistic form is I've got some CSV files I want to dump from, from some institution and put it out there. Maybe it has metadata, maybe it doesn't. But the people who use it often are interested in it and have a stake in it. They know a lot about the data. If there is bi-directional kind of feedback between, um, say, the users and these institutions, it could be a much richer environment set the stage for how we share data um, in, you know, in, in, um, in the enterprise, et cetera, like we do in software. So my background is in software engineering. We've, we've achieved that with Git, right? Um, pull requests are, are kind of a, a workflow that we would do with that. We don't have that necessarily in, in the open data world. And, and I think it's pretty limited in, in the enterprise as well. Well, and it's interesting to hear you talk about this because these are very similar to problems we have in the enterprise. So for example, the typical flow of data from a software application team to analytics teams. And often there isn't good communication from the analytics teams to the software team to say, hey, if you could reformat this data or change it in this way, the quality would be much better. We could do a lot more with it. Maybe we could even feed some back into your application for analytics purposes. It's a theme we just hear over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think also to echo what, what, what Andrew was saying too, it's it's different departments too. So you said the the, you know, the U.S. Geological Survey is different than what New Mexico uh, uses, right? Like some of the, some of the data or some of the the terms. So that's I didn't know that. That's kind of crazy. Uh, I, I imagine that has impacts. It, yeah, it does. Uh, and one of the most interesting things about that is as you grow, as you add more organizations that are that are interested or offering data sets around a given domain or topic, um, basically, you're putting it out there to the world. And that's what open data is all about. Um, as the scale grows, it's different than I, I think the enterprise In the enterprise where what we're seeing today is we solve problems through adding new products and it makes the complexity for the user more complicated. If you look at the the some of the things that we've done at at great scale, Ethernet, Git, um, zero trust architecture, in the end, it kind of goes up in a curve. It's like it's simple for two people to collaborate. Hey, I've got a Google account, Google Drive. Why don't you share your data with me? Give me a document. And then as you go up and start sharing within the organization, you're able to do it. We have standards. You guys talk about it all the time. But the complexity for the user sometimes mm -hmm. gets worse. And we have a number of vendors who have, you know, very hyper-specialized solutions. But then as you keep going out to the world, it forces you to think, how do you solve the hard problems? And this is my opinion. How do you solve the hard problems and start making it super simple for the user, right? How do you make it easy for them to collaborate? How do you make it easy for them to share the data, no matter where they are and, you know, what organization they belong to? Those things, I think, are yet to be solved. But... If you bring it out to that scale, I think that's what happens. And I see, I think we have precedent for that in, in, in other domains. Interesting. Now, how do we solve this in data? Because again, I think, it, you know, you mentioned software, right? And I think it, it, it's the common trope that we have on the show where it feels like software data is like, you know, decades behind uh, the software world and there's a lot to learn. Um, I mean, wait. I'm always struggling with this. Like, why do, why do you think this is, this shouldn't be that hard, right? Yeah, it, it shouldn't be that hard. I, I think, I think it's harder with data because data is always, is often the object 
of these different disciplines. So like in software engineering, you know, software kind of transforms data to produce derived data, right? Um, you know, uh, network architectures who have solved these problems at scale deliver data. So it's always the object of other disciplines. It's never been the subject of different, uh, of, uh, it's always a function mm -hmm. of something rather than something else being a function of it. So if you want to bring data into like the, into the next generation, all those other components that were the subject of, of, uh, of data, need, you need to turn that on its head, I think. Mm -hmm. um, so data becomes the first class citizen, but you still need to incorporate the lessons learned from scaling those other things. Like for instance, how do you share data across the world so, so that you can deliver, how is data addressable? Right now we address data through, you know, we have a host space uh, addressing scheme, you know. So if I wanna get data, I have to go to a specific host. You know, we have CDNs, et cetera, but that, I think that's a problem. Um, how do we replicate data so that there's not a burden on the producer? So in open data, one of the biggest problems, especially in third world countries is, I may be a scientist and I have, um, you know, some information I wanna share, but I'm not in Europe or the States. I, I don't have an open data portal to go to. And if I offer data, I have to incur the burden of putting that data out there. If it gets popular, I have to pay those costs. So how can we spread the load? So that speaks to just the delivery of data. Um, on the other side, in software engineering, you know, how do we, how do we, um, and I, you know, Jamak Degani, I, I've been kind of part of that community for a while, the data machine learning community. Yeah. She has a lot of good thoughts. She says that we should encapsulate those three elements, data, metadata, and, and, and code and logic. And I would agree. And I think at this scale, this is where it comes to a head, they all converge. And so that in a future world, we may in fact do that. We may have, that's, that may be the embodiment of knowledge, which is data, metadata, and code as one unit. And that's how we deliver things. And we do it in a distributed or decentralized manner. Um, and the only place where it really makes sense, and it's funny, when I first started looking at data mesh, I thought, this makes a lot of sense in cross-organizational collaboration. Mm -hmm. In a smaller shop or even a, even a large organization, it almost seems contrived. Like, oh, I'm going to have my data in my, this domain, you, you have your data. But as you scale, it makes a lot more sense. So I think if data mesh is to succeed, I think a perfect use case is out there in the public domain for the commons. Mm -hmm. Right. It's a natural, natural separation between organizations right, or institutions. And then as the tool set becomes mature, where we have implementations, we agree on something. For instance, it's de facto like Git. And, and there's a combination of all of these tool sets that we've had and we bring it back to the enterprise. I think that's where that's where it becomes simple to do something like data mesh, even if you're a small organization. Um, anyway, so a little bit of a, a ramp, but that's that's what I'm thinking these days. That's a great rant. I mean, it really resonates. We were talking before the show, Andrew, about the problems in academia, where even in the United States, where we have very good budgets for academic research, a lot of this data that's the output of research projects just sits on tapes or someone's laptop and is basically inaccessible by anyone else. And you publish the paper and the paper cites some statistics, but that's all anyone else gets, right? They don't get to see the data behind the graphs that go into the paper behind the statistical analysis. Yep. And and there's practical reasons for it. It's difficult for the researchers to use the existing tool sets, bring them all together and put them out there for a consumer to reproduce their data. It's not that it's it's not simple. Right. And, and so we if we were to collectively make that simpler, 
at a global scale so that anybody can take your work that you're describing in a paper and reproduce it easily, that's, that's the, you know, that's, that's where we want to be. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, especially with academia where it's a, it's a global thing too, right? Researchers work all over the world and, and uh, I mean, it's hard enough to get this correct at, um, at a national level, let alone uh, internationally, but, no, but, but what, you're, what you're saying is um, I think it's spot on and, yeah, when we were talking earlier too, I was like, "Oh yeah, that sounds." Uh, um, I wonder when he's going to bring up data mesh. So I'm, I'm glad you uh, uh, brought that up. I know you've been part of the community for a bit, and, and exactly what Jamak's you know describing, I think is, is definitely an ideal that um, you know, or or a state of the world that I, I know I can get along with. I know that some people um, may feel differently, but they we all have opinions, don't we? So, um, but it it sort of seems like it's the, the natural um, evolution towards something that would, you know, facilitate this type of collaboration. Cause I don't know how it would work otherwise. Right. Uh, well, obviously if, if what we, what we have worked, we'd be doing it and this wouldn't be a topic of discussion at this point. So that's exactly right. Yeah. Right. We'd be doing it. Um, but you know, I, I think, I think this is an inevitability at some point. What, as we get value out of our data within the organization, we're going to, you know, folks are already talking about the value of external data when you pair it with mm -hmm. internal organizational data, it makes a lot of sense. In the same way that, you know, uh, all the Apache libraries on GitHub add value to your to your enterprise app, right? It's, it's very similar in that sense. So if we lower the friction to be able to pull in public data sets and we're able to incorporate them and rebuild them and create derivative data, data sets and put them back, back put them, excuse me, put them back out there, and allow others to build other derivative data sets, that would be ideal. That's where we want to be. And that's what we're doing in software. We do that with uh, networks. We're working on that in security with you know, zero trust. How do we um, not get lazy about how we interface with others on data sets and, and start thinking about you know um, um, working to the individual? Is the individual able to share? That's where it starts. If we're sharing at scale, does, is the individual able to offer a, a data set and collaborate with someone else without bringing in, you know, a massive amount of infrastructure? I, I think that's where participation for everyone um, needs to be. And it brings in some, it would bring in some interesting um, standards and architecture. We could achieve that. Mm. You want to follow? Oh, go on that. Oh, I was going to say, I like that you cite GitHub. Uh, GitHub to me is interesting because it is on the one hand, a successful collaboration between a private company and open source. So these days it's Microsoft and open source, but it's also creates some problems. So for example, in principle, I can go download any of that open source code that's public. In practice, OpenAI gets preferential access to it because they can plug their pipes straight into GitHub because they have a deal with Microsoft. I don't know, what are your thoughts on that? How, to what degree should this be a public-private partnership, and to what degree should it be maybe a government function? Yeah, yeah, GitHub is interesting because they they brought a lot to the table. They they adopted Git early on. I think it was in two thousand five. The founders, uh, you know, said, "Hey, we need to start sharing this," and and people don't necessarily want to put a Git server out there. That's that was it was a decentralized architecture, but they made it easy for the developers to do that. Uh, but in the process, they grew. It became popular, and now we really have a centralized place, a de facto standard. Um, we do have GitLab. We have, you know, a Bitbucket that uh, Atlassian, I think that's how you say it, Atlassian, whatever. Atlassian, yep. 
so there are other Git providers, but I do think that um, I do think that we should break up GitHub. Honestly, <laughs> uh, I, I think that there, we, there should be other alternatives. Um, but that's I, I do my hats off to them for bringing bringing sharing of software projects to the front. Now, what where Git stops, and I think perhaps where we need to be is what what do we get from Git? We get source code. That is not an answer. In data, what what are the people you talk about this a lot, Joe? We want answers. They want the regular users want answers. They don't want tables. They want answers. Now, code is part of that equation. So it's an intermediate delivery. It's not the final product. So we can get to a point where we coalesce existing sources like GitHub and data sets that are in table form or, or whatever, and able to produce answers for groups of people who have interest in them um, at every level. Some people just want an answer. Some people want, they want to dig in. Some people want the lineage. Th those are all the varying requirements that I see in open data um, that really, really are, are, are setting a, a great use case for where we could be. Mm. Yeah, and John Koki uh, has a good point here. Uh, Get perfected the dev sharing experience, which it did, right? And so, mm -hmm. um, and it's become the default um, you know, way of doing stuff. And, and the thing is, it's become, um, I can't remember who it was. Somebody somebody showed me the other, or a, a post maybe on LinkedIn or something like that, but it was uh, basically all the workflows in Git and um, you know how they're, I think, basically running everything out of GitHub right now, GitHub Actions and, mm -hmm. and so forth. It's become sort of the default um I wouldn't say IDE, but definitely a, a sharing environment, right? So I think it's it's a good experience, but you know, extending that to data might be, you know, sort of the next uh, wave. We'll see. Uh, on a related note, since we're talking about Microsoft, Donald Parrish on YouTube, he says uh, as, as a point, which I, I don't know, have you checked out Microsoft's Fabric yet? I, I've read a little bit about okay. it. Okay. So anyway, here's here's what he says uh, for the um, people listening on the podcast. Uh, Microsoft's new Fabric with one lake may actually help collaboration in Microsoft Shops when making it easier to get data in and, and seeing File Explorer. So, but I think this raises an interesting point because a lot of the um, friction that I know Matt and I have seen with data delivery, and I'm sure you've seen too, and data sharing um, is particularly acute, I would say, in, I, I don't know, quote, legacy shops. I, I might lump in... Um, uh, it's a bit of a generalization, but with some old school Microsoft shops definitely, I think, suffer from this. Uh, the notion right now is throw it all in SharePoint and uh, you can go find all your data there. And, you know, and that's about it. Uh, and so I don't, I don't know if you have any, any thoughts on uh, it's more of an ecosystem type question, but. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's simpler for an organization that's Microsoft shop to use what they have. Um, mm -hmm. you know, and, and I think that's that's where we get into the curve as, as you go into an organization and they want to simplify things, the default reaction is to get a platform. Uh, one size fits all, everybody's under 110. But the reality is if you push that out to worldwide access, not everybody can be or wants to be on Microsoft. That That's where it starts to shift. So that may be a solution for Microsoft customers, but what happens when you do cross-organizational collaboration? Are you gonna ask another organization you need to get on Microsoft? Some might, how about 10, 20, 1,000? So, so then everybody has to own their own slice of the pie in some way, and it, it mm -hmm. can't just be Microsoft. Microsoft may have an implementation of this, this future state, but it's not just Microsoft. So I agree that that may work within the enterprise or maybe even across yeah. you know, partners, but keep expanding that. What is the, what is the outcome become? 
Um, I mean, it might be chat GPT. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly I mean, not the topic. No, I mean, I'm not, I'm not kidding though. Um, yeah. So maybe, maybe that is the interface. You just, um, you know, collaborate with everyone's data. I don't know. It's, it's an interesting one though. Cause it, cause it, you know, I think it's, it's definitely going a step towards, I mean, cause you're talking kind of a tale of two worlds, right? Cause there's the, um, internal organization, uh, friction of sharing data, um, and collaborating. And then obviously between organizations, that's, that's, a, that's a whole different can of worms there. So, yeah. you know, and, and I think for the former, you know, just, um, you know, uh, you know intra-company, uh, collaboration, that's still tricky as, as hell, whether you're small or big. So certainly is. Yeah. Going across, I don't know. Maybe, maybe it might actually, in fact, be easier going across organizations than, than in, inside an organization. Like, I could make an argument that that actually might be simpler. I don't, I don't know if that's uh, controversial or not. But I mean, you could imagine a future where, much like GitHub has become the dominant Git and code sharing platform, maybe Microsoft becomes the dominant data sharing platform. Um, there are advantages to that. Everyone knows that's kind of the one-stop shop for sharing data, but also big disadvantages, again, to put that under a private company. So I don't know if there's a future where somehow multiple big players can collaborate and say, this is our open standard. You can access data cross-platform. It seems unlikely that that would happen. It seems unlikely that Google and Amazon and Microsoft would choose to collaborate on something like that. Yeah. Who knows? I guess if we pushed for it, then maybe it's possible. It's a good question. Yeah, because I mean, they'd have to have an incentive to do this. And right now it's, you know, uh, gloves are off and they're just beating the crap out of each other. Them being the, the big cloud providers and big, uh, you know, the cloud data platforms uh, that are not the big cloud providers. So, um, yeah, it's just it's it's like a steel cage match right now. So coming to a, a holistic standard um, might happen. I don't know. <laughs> Let me yeah. ask you this, Andrew. What do you think about what's going on right now with model training data? So OpenAI used all kinds of data, including Stack Overflow and Reddit and all kinds of things to train GPT-4 and other models. And now these data providers are starting to lock that down and saying, no, under terms of service in the future, you can't train on our data without permission. What, what do you think about that trend? I, I mean, generally, I think that, I mean, I think it's indicative of, the Silicon Valley mindset that I've seen that if I do the work, then I own it. Right. It's, it almost reminds me of, um, um, there's this concept out in the West of, uh, homesteading land, right? Mm -hmm. So if you work the land, it's yours. And so I, in effect, I think it's wrong. Um, although the vendors who are collecting those, those aggregators don't own the data either. It's the people who are, who are publishing them. Of course, there's party in agreement. So somehow we need to solve that, but I, I don't think it's, right for them to be uh, monetizing their the outputs, their models based on public data that humanity has given to them on a silver platter. That's just my opinion. But I mean, that, that's what Google got rich off of too. They did. Yeah, yeah, and it's, yeah, I'm not sure how this is solved. I mean, you know, they, I think some of the, uh, you know, the incoming um, regulation and AI, maybe that, you know, will have an impact. Although you know, what you what you're seeing right now is definitely a regulatory capture by the big players too. I mean, Sam Altman was on his European tour recently, and uh, maybe there's a he's not going there because he likes Europe. Um, so, 
you know, the, the vote was coming up. So, you know, he's, he's making his, uh, his stops and doing what he needed to do. I mean, he's trying to run a business too. So, uh, but that, that's been the name of the game since day one is, you know, the, the, you know, if you have a, um, a chance of doing regulatory capture, you're going to go do it, you know, so. I mean, look at Sam Bankman-Fried, right? Part of the reason he was able to slow down investigations into FTX is by claiming that he wanted regulations and going out and like yeah. doing a lot of glad handing and a lot of donations. Oh, he was a great guy, Matt. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I can't, I can't, on a side note, I can't wait for Michael Lewis's book to come out about uh, Sam Bankman-Fried. That's going to be a good one to, to read. Uh, Michael Lewis being one of my favorite authors, but anyway, I digress. Um, yeah, yeah, I don't know. I mean, and, and, and you know, there's some comments here. Uh, let's just see here. Um, bum, bum. Yeah, John Cook again. Uh, internal collaboration is an op model, but needs a really low friction, uh, easy to use marketplace. And for those outside of departments, agreed. Uh, I don't know what your thoughts are on this, but um, it's, it's kind of rewinding a few minutes back. But uh, I'm sorry, I didn't catch the. Oh, it's, it should be on the screen here. Uh, John Cook's uh, got something here. Internal collaboration. Yeah, I, I agree. In, in essence, I, that's what I was trying to say is that yeah. for the, from the user's perspective, it has to be low friction. Mm -hmm. I think that's in the problem that as we transition towards that low friction and we will, um, you know, we're, we're somewhere in purgatory where we're, we're the burden is, is on the users to mm -hmm. assemble all of these things together. And that's where we have this, you know, this, this tool hell. And, and likewise, an open, open source, or I'm sorry, open data, it's the same thing. Uh, a colleague of mine calls all the data portals out there, portal palooza. Everybody's offering mm. a portal. But, but users aren't interested necessarily in who owns the portal. They just, they're interested in data based on geographic region or some yep. other thing. They don't care. So mm -hmm. we make it easier for them. So no matter where it comes from, they can have access to it. Yeah, for sure. And I think I think part of the problem with the portals is too is there's not, um, as far as I know, maybe I'm wrong, but I, I can't tell if there's a standard uh, way of creating a portal and, and um, serving data from a portal, right? So, so in a lot of cases, right, it might be a REST API. I, I think um, we've all written REST APIs. Uh, there's not really there are, there are suggestions and specifications. It's not like anyone actually pays attention to these when they write the APIs. So. Right. <laughs> That's definitely the case. Yeah. I mean, we in, in New Mexico, we have a standard. We adopted Open Geospatial Consortium uh, the mm -hmm. sensor API because a lot of it's basically, you know, sensor or um, type data. But that works as long as you stay in, in our house. Right. right. It, and USGS also adopted it. So that's good. But if you go to another data set, they may not they may have their own standard. Every virtually every portal may have their own standard. Mm hmm. They measure things. One measures it in centimeters. The other one measures the water and, you know, something else. Uh, they may have a different interpretation about what it means to be, you know, how many inches, you know, above or below the water or things like that. It, there's just, it runs the gambit. So uh, the problem is, you know, how do you get people, how do you make it simpler for people to coalesce on things or be able to transform, you know, A to B and then be able to offer that. So the next person that comes by says, oh, does someone already did this? I don't have to redo the work. That's where the burden lies. It's the, the burden needs to be lessened on the on the user of the data. And that ha that's true also of enterprise, right? But it's just, mm -hmm. this is at a grand scale, um, which is where I think problems get solved, like yeah. you know, in, a, in a global scale. 
Well, yeah, I agree. Right now, it feels like we're just gaslighting users. <laughs> yeah. Like, well, it's like, obviously, you're too dumb to get the data. Duh. So it's like, what's your problem? Right. So, yeah, that's pretty fascinating. Yeah, I mean, and it kind of comes back to data mesh, too. I think that, you know, what Jumac laid out is, I think, the blueprint to make it happen. I know that she started a company to, to make it happen. And, um, you know, there's there are definitely challenges. I mean, a lot of the stuff hasn't been done before. She's, you know, helping build the future and that's the name of the game. If, like I said, if it were done already, then we wouldn't have to have the conversation. So, but it, it's a gnarly, gnarly problem to solve. You know? yep. So, yeah. Um, let me see what else has people said here. Um, yeah, it's kind of rewinding. Dan, Dan Everett, uh, data sharing is going to be impacted. Uh, lock it down. I think to your earlier comments, you, I think you may have uh, differences of opinion on this, but, uh, yeah, what well, was it? Reddit, right? They had, um, you know, I think all the users were pissed off because the APIs are being locked down, uh, you know, a week or two ago. And some people were predicting the death of Reddit uh, as a result of that. I was just on Reddit um, a bit ago and I didn't see that it was dead. It's still as active and um, toxic as ever. So um, it's. Uh... Well, I, I think the interesting thing with Reddit and the reason some people are claiming that it should be killed is that this is so Reddit is responsible for the platform, but it's user generated content, right? It's mm -hmm. people spending a lot of time on Reddit, moderating, writing, exchanging ideas. That's what what drives Reddit. And same thing with uh, Stack Overflow or GitHub. Lots of user generated content, user generated code, user generated answers, questions, everything else. And so then this question arises to what extent are those platforms responsible to make that user-generated content publicly available? And up to now, mm -hmm. like Reddit at least has done that through APIs and now they're locking that down and changing their mind. Same thing with Twitter, right? Twitter is really locked down access outside of oh, yeah. the user account. It used to be much easier to get data scraping, for example. Oh yeah, I mean, I, I was like, uh, you know, I, I rarely doom scroll Twitter, but on my flight uh, back from Vancouver uh, to Salt Lake City on, on a Friday evening, um, that was right as the uh, the uh, the the short the the twenty four hour coup was going on in uh, in Russia. So, um, so you know, I was just like, "What's happening? This is like this is the most bizarre thing." And Reddit or Twitter was the only place I could read it, right? But um, but it was definitely uh, you know, I mean, I, I have a, I have a burner Twitter account that I use, but it was like a, you know, yeah, it's locked down. You used to be able to have a lot more access to it, and um, but that's like everything, right? I mean, I'm on a other apps like next door, you know, I have a, a, a burner account on that too, but I do like to see what's going on in my neighborhood, but there's no way in hell you're going to read that data if you don't have an account. Right. So that's all user generated content as well. So it goes back to like, I don't know, section two thirty and all that fun stuff, which they, who knows the fate of that, but yeah. yeah. That's actually interesting as well. I'll tie that back to my comment about the scientists in Africa who wants to publish a single data set. What's their burden? There's a burden to the publisher mm. to be off offer the infrastructure for that particular piece of data. If it becomes popular, they're responsible. They incur the cost of putting it out there. In the same way, some of these social media platforms, they 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 have to, well, they definitely have to pay for, for the cost of using their service every time someone wants some of that data that are hitting their APIs. They're 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 paying for that. Um, you know, I I wonder if there's not a, a future world where we share we share the content cost of serving the data. And there mm -hmm. are some things out there um, in terms of technology. One I'm particularly interested in is IPFS or the interplanetary file system where mm. it's not one publisher. If I have a copy, then you can get it from me. So it's, it's, it's almost like a CDN. 
and I think if we had social media platforms that kind of subscribe to this model where it's not coming from one place, then the burden of the publisher is lessened and perhaps it wouldn't be as much of an issue. But that's just me dreaming of, of the future. Yeah, world. I was going to say, because I think like, didn't Facebook just cut off a, a new Facebook news access to Canada the other day? Because uh, they didn't want to pay a, um, yeah. some sort of arrangement. Yeah, so it's like... In this case, they couldn't do it. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. yeah if somebody else had it they could serve it mm -hmm. yeah. well i mean one interesting interesting thing here is that there are already commercial solutions to this so for example um yeah. amazon s3 amazon s3 has an option called requester pays right so actually you mm -hmm. as the person hosting the data don't have to pay for that but you still have to pay for the storage and if you're storing a hundred terabyte data set that's still a lot of money <laughs> and going back to the academic discussion earlier um, you know, some of these big data sets in physics or something can be hundreds of terabytes or petabytes or something. And the problem is that the grants that pay for the research that generates the data make no provision for you to say, all right, I'm also going to pay for, to store it for the next 20 years or something like this. So it's available. So part of this is a government policy issue, at least with academia and other government funded research. Yeah. I just want to go to a comment that Scott had here real quick, Scott Harlman, uh, aka LinkedIn user on StreamYard. Um, he says, in a bunch of uh, data mesh implementations, the consumer does pay. Uh, maybe there's a CDN bank at the at GitHub or something to pay for the cost of downloading. Um, do you have any thoughts on this, Andrew? I think that's a better model, that if there are consumers who are interested in content, um, that they should, some of that, uh, the payment should be pushed out to the consumer. Mm -hmm. um, and, and what does that imply? That implies that, you know, that, that it's more equitable in the end. Sure, you're paying for it, but at the same time, um, you don't have someone that's holding all the purse strings to that data set. And it's yeah. concerned about that burden I talk about of the publisher. It goes away. So, and those that are interested in it, have they value it, correct? So, so they're paying for it in some way, even if it's just a little bit of money. Mm-hmm. If more people are interested, perhaps the cost is lessened. I mean, that's the kind of model. So, yeah, I would agree with Scott uh, on that. Uh, yeah, I do too. I mean, and it, it's an interesting one too, because I, I, I was thinking the other day, sort of along these lines about, um, you know, I have various subscriptions. You know, we're, we're talking pretty pedestrian things. We're not talking about data sharing, you know, for, for open data sets or whatever. But, you know, I have a subscription to like what New York Times, Wall Street Journal, um, you know, a bunch of publications. And, I, you know, it'd be nice if I could just, um, you know, aggregate those all into one, uh, you know, and, and or if there's a model where it's just like, you know, pay to consume, you know, uh, an article might cost a fraction of a penny or something like that, sort of a streaming model. But it's like, you know, why do I have to have all these subscriptions, right, in this day and age? You know, why, why can't we just bundle this together and, and, uh, right. and pay that way? So, but, you know, things as they are, everything likes to be balkanized. So it's, it's, it's a... That's a good idea. I mean, so you're paying for content. It where it comes from is immaterial, correct? Yeah, yeah. It's just content. I, I pay for content. It happens to come from the New York Times or somewhere else. Yeah, I would definitely be on board with that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's um, actually uh, Val has a good question here. Um, what about data rooms? I'm I'm guessing these might be like data clean rooms, Val. If you want to elaborate on that, but he asks, can those be used to store open data cost effectively? I'm not familiar with data rooms. Yeah, maybe he can clarify. Yeah, I think, I don't know if he's alluding to the notion of data clean rooms, 
but it's it's um and I'm, and it's in an area where I'm actually you know not qualified to speak on, so I'll just ask Val to um, clarify it. So, um, but anyway, we'll move on. <laughs> if Val wants to get back to us on the answer, that'd be great. But yeah, uh, there's, there's a good comment from Donald about pay for pay for consumption makes a lot of sense, and yeah, there's precedent for it in music, right? Mm -hmm. it now so yeah but it's an, it's an interesting model i mean i think that this is you know especially with i mean this kind of brings up the, the issue of data lineage too i suppose right and, 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 and traceability and attribution right but i think especially as we move into a world with uh you know, I, I I do think things like interfacing with large language models and generative AI is just going to be table stakes. It's, um, you know, that's how we're going to get a lot of our quote news in, in the future is it's just going to be synthesized. Uh, you know, the creators of, the, of that content that that was synthesized from, I, I think do deserve to have, um, you know, a seat at the table here. Because otherwise, what's the incentive to create content anymore? Like absolutely zero. I, I Being a content creator, Matt's a content creator, you, you create content like what, you know, especially if your living does come from content, like what would be the point otherwise? Like, I'll we'll just go find something else to do, like go, um, I don't know, herd cattle or something. So it's like, <laughs> it's just, you know, it's just a point. Uh, Val got back to us with the uh, clean rooms as well. He said data clean rooms, yes, but it expanded to the data sharing and, and content uh, aggregations, pay for consumption. Um, again, Matt, are you are you uh, hip on data clean rooms at all? I'm not. Uh, now I want to go read up on data clean rooms and maybe yeah. continue the conversation around that later. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, yeah, sorry, we <laughs> we don't like to BS our uh, our way through answers, so we'll just uh, we'll move on. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I mean, I always see it on like Snowflakes, uh, for example. They they they've been advertising their data clean room. I haven't had a chance to go look at it, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna interesting it away. Yeah. Okay, I'll have to look at their white papers on it and such. Yeah, they're uh, who knows? They probably have a bunch of stuff coming out uh, this week because it's Snowflake Summit, you know. So, um, yeah. Are you going to a Snowflake Summit by any chance, uh, Andrew, or uh, any of the big uh, conferences this week? I, I am not. No. You are not? Oh, not no. Okay. Not as much of a world traveler as you guys. No. <laughs> <laughs> Joe is more of a world traveler than I am. You just got back from Vancouver. so <laughs> oh, That's basically America. <laughs> don't, don't tell Canada that it's America. It's... Well, we have our own Vancouver, too. Um, that's so... true. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was funny. I was actually talking with a friend of mine, and he's uh, over the weekend. He was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to go to a, a row, rowing race in Vancouver. And it was like, uh, uh, I was like, which one? And he's like, oh, Washington. Like, oh, never mind. That's like the, uh... anyway, that was kind of funny. Um but yeah, I mean, so, you know, kind of kind of back to the topic at hand. I mean, we're talking about data collaboration. Um, you know, if you if you were to envision, you know, kind of, you know, Andrew's way forward to, you know, make data collaboration a, a, a real thing over the next five years, like what, what what are some steps you would take? If you if you could wave a magic wand and this would uh, uh, you know, be um, something you could do and control. Yeah, at a high level, I would. I would follow precedent, but like I talked about that we've seen in software and elsewhere, right? So, so what does that mean for the consumer? The outcome would be that a user, when they're a user can collaborate with anyone or any institution without incurring any appreciable infrastructure costs, and they can have access to any data set, regardless of what institution or portal it came from. So it's, it's an ideal decentralized model. Um, and they're able to, do everything that they need to do if they want to 
on their own machine, just like we do when we do, you know, versioning and, and Git or, or et cetera. Or we could push out our projects to the cloud or both, or maybe it's immaterial, but that's, that's where I think we should be in terms of outcomes. Um, I think we're somewhere in the, like I said, somewhere in the, on our way, but um, multi-cloud is, is making cloud commoditized now. So the, the idea of just Google offering data, open data portals, or maybe just Amazon or someone else, I, I think they're going to be, um, hopefully they'll, they'll be incentivized to go just, just to be a player and not just the sole source provider of important content, especially scientific data that belongs to the world, um, in my opinion. And if they wanna be a player in terms of infrastructure, uh, that's great, uh, but they shouldn't be the, the only place to go to. And it shouldn't matter, it should be immaterial where you get it from. So, um, yeah. Well, and, and go, going back to this whole discussion, I mean, on the one hand, cloud providers have already off opened the door for open data. I mean, S3 and Google Cloud Storage mm -hmm. and you know Microsoft's alternative blob storage. These are fantastic platforms for data sharing. On the other hand, a lot of their policies are highly, highly punitive, like data egress costs. They want right. you to yeah. land the data in Microsoft and never export it, or they're gonna charge you a pile of money. <laughs> yeah, so how do, we, how do we change that culture of saying, no, we have to start collaborating more. We have to get the data out there and not charge users so much money to get it. Yeah, and, and that's, I think that's also looking at not just from a data perspective, but that triad that, that Shamak talks about, you know, the data metadata logic, you know, what does she call it, the, the architectural quantum. Um, this future world would, would know, and I talked to a guy from Intel who did a lot of work with the U.S. Navy, and he mentioned this as well. If I want to, work, uh, say, apply some algorithm I created, and I'm sitting here on my laptop in Albuquerque, New Mexico, on this data set, it's really large. This future system should know to ship the logic to wherever it's at, and then they charge me for compute, right? And I get the result, which may be a small data set. So I'm not downloading all the data. It knows, hey, this data is like five terabytes. I'm gonna mm -hmm. take this guy's logic and I'll bring it up to wherever the data lives and I'm gonna operate on it. And I'm gonna create a project on his behalf or her behalf or whatever. And then the output, you know, gets gets put out there and maybe they get charged for that as well. But it's much smaller than pulling everything down. So it would have to be mm -hmm. smart. That's taken into consideration all those things. You know, how do you how do you balance, you know, the management of metadata data and, and, and logic within a project? Because all of those are important aspects to to the knowledge that we're trying to get. Ultimately that's what we want. We want answers. Right. We want knowledge. And in the digital embodiment is, are those three three things I think. That's a really good point. Really well, good point. I feel like this is related to what Val Goldin said here. Let me bring up this comment. I'll read it. This is where data quality becomes paramount, where it will be a wild west of data on these platforms. And who do you go to to get data quality issues addressed? So I, I, I think you've been alluding to this, Andrew, about the bi-directional communication problems. And again, if, if a government puts data out there, who's responsible for the data quality? Right. Yep. Um, I've seen that many times and, and there's just not a means for it. Um, you know, often I, I actually heard it at, at a conference. I'm wearing the t-shirts to, to the conference I was at, um, but there was a scientist that said, you know, I saw some, some data points that I downloaded from one of the state agencies and it was a quick fix, but you know, um, if, if I have to do a lot of work 
to get it fixed, I don't want, I'm out. I don't want to do it. Yep. So that's the problem. So then it stays incorrect. See, that's why, that's why lowering the bar needs to happen in order yeah. for this to work because that crowdsourcing element to data sets, we, you, you really can't have one institution or one organization say, I am the expert on, on this data. That's never the case, it's especially as you grow larger and larger. You need, you need many, many minds to take a look at this and say, you know what, that's not right. I mean, that's how Wikipedia works, right? Mm-hmm. Um, even though that may not always necessarily be right, but, but th- there's a number of platforms we, we see in social media that, that do this. How do we do that for data sets, simply, that are public domain? How do right. we do that for the enterprise? There may be someone uh, you know, in the C-suite that sees something that just doesn't look right. Um, uh, I, I like that analogy that Ben Stansel put out a few weeks ago, that sausage tastes a little different. I don't care how the hell it's made or something like that, but it tastes different. There are people that just instinctively know something's up. Mm-hmm. How can they offer that as they're looking at a data set simply? Now, that may happen in a single platform if you buy something from, say, who knows, Oracle or whoever. But, but how can you consistently offer and share that no matter what organization you're in? I think that's what I'm most interested in. How can we consistently do that? Yeah, and as John Cook points out too, uh, you know, the challenge is everybody has a different purpose for data, so agreement is tricky. Um, that's uh, that's true, yeah. but there's also many versions of, of data that people can look at, and that's their that's their source of truth, right? Yeah. So versioning is is another and lineage is very important in this in, in this workflow. It's actually essential, I think, and I, I don't think John would disagree with that. Nah. Scott has another good question here. How do you think about data contracts and consumer-driven testing? Uh, can you reasonably do versioning across potentially many co- consumers, or is it closer to super cordoned off uh, collab zones between two, maybe three orgs, and it's not really open data? There's a lot of questions there, so I'll let you parse through that. And... Yeah, I I like the the idea of data contracts, but I I don't know that. And I, someone mentioned it in a previous talk. It might have been in the data mesh community. They, they said the contract is defined by the consumer. And different consumers, as John just said, have different ideas as to what is correct. So in, in my mind, if we have data contracts implemented, it, it, it's based on a certain group of people, these self-selecting groups who define what the truth is. And their contracts may differ on the same or ver- different versions of the same data set at the same time. It sounds complex, but that's the reality of things. People kind of coalesce together and say, this is what we think the truth is, and they hold on to that. So what's the digital embodiment of that? That, that may be a version of the data set with contracts that agree or enforce what they think, and that's the end of story for that group. Another group may have something else, but at least if you have lineage, you can draw the line between A and B. This person thinks of it this way. This person thinks of it that way what's how how can i connect the two together if you're another party coming into the equation for that for that data set or data sets yeah and i mean if you kind of extend this this idea to to, to, the practicality of how like legal teams work in a company for example right um if if all contracts were standard and i get you know i'm I'm, uh, extending the notion of a contract to a legal contract but hey it's a good analogy um uh legal contracts are tricky Right. Um, and there's a lot of nuance to them. And, you know, as a company, uh, you know, with your uh, various customers and partners, whatever, you're going to have different contracts depending on the needs and goals of your relationship. And I, I think this is very, very similar to um, 
data contracts, right? There's, there might be different SLAs regarding schema changes or whatever types of changes, uh, data quality and so forth. But I think to your point, it's, it's hard to imagine there's a one size fits all unless, you know, again, uh, this is, um, you know, the situation where there's like one API and that, that's, you, you get what you get. Um, but when you're dealing with, with complex arrangements, um, say, you know, it, it, data sharing between companies, I, I, I can imagine that the one size fits all is not going to really cut it for certain use cases. So, I would imagine so. Yeah. Yeah. Which well, is I, interesting. I, I guess the, the notion of like a data contract being, um, uh, I guess, coupled with a legal contract. Uh, that's a, probably a topic for a different discussion. What are you going to say, Matt? interesting. I, I was just going to say there's a parallel here with open source software, right? So think about Linux. So yeah. the core Linux team tests the kernel as they're building it, and then they do a new deploy. But then it goes downstream to all these different distributions like Debian and Red Hat and Ubuntu, and then they do their own testing before they deploy it. And then when they find issues, they can send those upstream and say, hey, Linux, we have this problem with the kernel. It's not doing X, Y, and Z. And then further on, as, as it gets deployed out to users, there's more testing there. And so in, in principle, this is a nice model for data quality, too, that people, mm -hmm. like as you've alluded to, Andrew, the people who consume that data actually become experts in it and can inform the upstream team about issues. Perfect. Yeah, I like that analogy. And that tie back. Yeah, that makes sense. Let's see if there's any other questions here. Um, yeah, Donald says it sounds like an edge computing idea. Um, I don't know. Does it seem like edge computing to you? I, I don't necessarily know it characterizes that. Um, but yeah, in a sense, I mean, I, I think in the end, you know, it goes down to the individual. You know, as you expand the the populace who's interested in data sets, it goes down to what are the preferences of the individual and how can they use it in the way that they want to use it. It, it is personalization to the extreme, but we have that in software, right? I can I can do that in software. Um, I can do that in social media sites, have my own preferences of who I want to see on my feed, et cetera. Why don't we do that for data sets? When we get together as groups, we may come to consensus. That makes sense too. So those are the different kind of like, this is kind of like a multiverse of data, right? Which version do you want to be on? Mm. Which which ones do you agree with? But in the end, it has to get down to the individual, I think. If it works for the individual, then you can always make it work for a group who agree with one another. Um, it's a difficult problem to solve, right? But, but there are a lot of difficult problems that we have solved. Mm -hmm. um, in the past that, that, that are not data, that are related to data. That's why I think there's hope. I agree. I agree. I think we'll get there. Yeah. I, I think over the next five years, I think this, uh, I mean, again, I think what you're, what you're kind of alluding to with, we, we've done this before is a, in software, right? We've, we've, we've managed to overcome, I think a lot of barriers that were maybe inconceivable or, um, or just something else maybe you're alluding to. Yeah, no, the, that's exactly it. Yeah, um, yeah. I guess I, I think I may be misquoting. Like, isn't there a, a Winston Churchill quote about uh, Americans? They'll get to the right answer after they tried everything else first. Yeah, it was Churchill. In technology, that that can be the case. We meandered. <laughs> well, but, yeah, it was interesting. You know, over over uh, on Friday, I was talking to uh, uh, the Dama Vancouver chapter. Um, you know about a. Uh, 
the talk was data modeling is dead, long live data modeling. And, and the whole point of the conversation was, you know, we, we've, we've been going in circles as, an, as a data industry for decades, right? And, and I feel like a lot of the stuff we've been trying to do, it ain't working. So we need a kick in the ass, try something different. And I think we'll get there. But, you know, and I, and I, I kind of called it out, you know, to the group. I was like, why are, we, why are we still talking about the same stuff decade after decade? Getting more value from data, um, you know, get, getting more adoption of data. All these, all these questions. I'm, I'm so senselessly bored with these conversations at this point that if we keep doing the same stuff, we're going to get the same results. Um, and I, you know, there's, it's, you know, maybe the apocryphal definition of insanity or something like that. But the whole point is we need to take different approaches at this point. I mean, the entire, the sake of the, the fate of the industry is at stake right now. I, I, I hate to be so melodramatic, but it is, I mean, we, we've, there's, there's a lot of investment, a lot of attention. And this, uh, this is time we, we can get it right. You know, and I think widen the adoption of data. This is also the chance we can colossally screw it up if we're not careful. So, yep. you know, and things like this, I think it's 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 a radical departure from what we've been doing, but it has to happen. Um, and I don't even think it's that radical, really, but I think it's perceived as being radical because it doesn't fit within the neat confines of how, you know, we've been doing data forever. But again, just adopting, like, there's a lot of inspiration we can take from software. They, they had to do this out of necessity and, and, they, and it's worked, right? There's software everywhere. So I definitely would agree. It's amazing, not just in data, but generally in in, in science, even. Um, not a scientist, but but I appreciate science. And and I find even in data, I was looking at how how the industry was evolving, um, how we query data, uh, what what is the latest technologies and algorithms. And I was looking at this one for graph, it's called worst case optimal join. And it's based on this tree algorithm that it's a way of indexing data that was developed in the 1960s and then it's put on a shelf. But it has a lot of promise. I, I think relational AI is talks a lot about it. And it was also in um, this professor from CMU has a series on on YouTube and he was talking about how it works. And this, this has been known to a small community. And it, it isn't until the time is right and the, and the use case is present, you know, where we have, and I think we're approaching that now, how can we easily join not just 10 tables, but thousands of tables and not have this like this performance impact that we have? This is a potential solution to that. Um, I'm mm -hmm. not saying it's, a, it's the only solution, but this is promising. But it's been sitting on a shelf, at least right. the, core, the core algorithm. But that's so, a, it's like a lot of ideas, though. You know, I, I mean, like domain driven design. I mean, that sat on the shelf with respect to data people for ages. You know, I think a few people dared to tread into the the realm of software and look at what uh you know eric evans has written and uh you know jamaica i think adopted that wholeheartedly and it's like yeah domains that's how we need to do things and that that opened the door now now we're talking about data products as a, as a real thing right and so that's you know the, it, it reminds me of the other day i was uh you know back to that talk i was giving i talked about uh, how we need to um you know look at the use of uh data model patterns right conceptual patterns and these were written about uh, len silverson wrote like three books on this and uh data resource um, model books, right? And somebody chimed in and said, well, but if these work, they, you know, why, why would we still be uh, talking about them? Like, I think they'd been forgotten is what happened. You know, now we're rediscovering them. But to your point, the, the, some of the stuff sits on shelves and then it's all about, it's all about timing, right? I mean, that, that's the other, the other part of it. It could be a great idea, but if the time's not right, it don't matter. Isn't, it that, isn't that the case? Yeah, it, it's like we get to a, a juncture where there's a lot of pain and there's no alternatives. And we start looking back, oh, what did somebody else say? 
Mm-hmm. And then, oh, okay, this, this guy already figured it out. Maybe he didn't even imagine our use case, but he came up with some abstract algorithm or some solution. Or in your case, this has already been out there in, in, in data management and, and mm-hmm. modeling, et cetera. So, yeah, definitely agree. So, uh, you know, research in, in some form is always important. Um, I, I worked with a lot of researchers when I was with at IBM, and some people used to say, you know, what do they do? You know, because we were working mm-hmm. on a product, and they're like, you know, what are they producing? And the answer is, you know, they don't necessarily know where it's going to go, but the company saw that it was valuable. You know, they put stuff out there and it may sit on a shelf, but at some point it may become very valuable. So, mm-hmm. and, and so, and so that's the case for institutions as well, universities. Yeah. And so so it, that's not, you know, it's not, I know we like to think that all the innovation happens in, in, um, in startups. And I was part of a few startups that were successful. Um, it does, but it tends to be incremental and it fits yeah. in immediate need, not, not, not groundbreaking innovation. That one, groundbreaking innovation tends to sit on a shelf. Yeah, it does. Well, yeah. it, it's interesting, you know, a, a bit of a historical aside too. I mean, it, it, it can be argued that the 1880s were actually the most uh, innovative time in human history, right? That was a long time ago now. And, and in fact, if you look at, quote, in, innovation right now, with the exception of maybe AI, it's like uh, innovation and, and, and uh, I think other metrics are actually declining in America worldwide yeah and i think that you know if you, if you look at um you know, there's a lot of popular books i can recommend to the audience but this is this is true so to, to your point we, we like to put ourselves in a pedestal and think that we're in um you know in this unique time in history but you know as I, i've been doing a lot of research for my own book uh it, it's like it, it's very clear a lot of the stuff we're doing decades old there's not a lot new here mm-hmm. uh, you just need to go find it but but that's a trick because there's a lot of this stuff is like it's like finding the Dead Sea Scrolls is what I described to my audience on Friday. It's like you, right. <laughs> you know, you're lucky if you can find them. But yeah, so well, awesome. Um, we had great chat. Uh, for people who want to learn more about you, uh, how can they find you? Uh, LinkedIn's great. So LinkedIn, right. if any of this is interesting to you, this conversation, you know, just uh, contact me on LinkedIn. Love to love to chat. Yeah. And you, like I said, you got you got a lot of great posts. I think that's uh, you know why, why uh, re- we reach out and just want to have a chat. I think that you know you, uh, I don't know if it's a function of just your experience or, or the fact you you might be removed from I think the the, the typical uh, geographical bubbles as well because you're in uh, New Mexico. But you just have a very original thought process uh, around um, you know our industry that I don't see that often. So yeah, I I, I guess New Mexico definitely is a bubble uh, for sure. I, I'm not sure what the secret sauce is, but uh, I'm glad you appreciate it. I, you don't often hear about like sometimes I hear from time to time. Oh, that, I like your post, but I, I just put it out there into the ether, and if someone likes it. That's awesome. You know, well, and New Mexico is underrated. I mean, you you have a lot of technology innovation there going is. on. Speaking of which, right, like Sandia yeah. and other places. Los Alamos. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, pretty small players. Uh, just kidding. Um, so, are you going to check out that uh, Oppenheimer movie when it comes out? I am. Yeah, that looks really good. Are you going to see it, Matt? Uh, planning to. Yeah, yeah. It looks kind of. Ter- I've heard it's kind of terrifying too, but we'll we'll see. I mean, the, t- the topic matter is kind of and terrifying. Yeah, so. and, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Mass destruction. Yeah, yeah lighthearted stuff. Um, yeah. So cool, cool. Yeah, thanks for being on the show, Andrew. Uh, Matt, um, you are. Where are you right now? I am in San Francisco at the moment, so I am at the Databricks Summit, so Data Plus AI Summit. And so uh, if you're interested in meeting, hanging out, whatever, um, definitely say hello while I'm in town. Cool. Yeah, and tomorrow night, Matt and I will be at the uh, Mage uh, 
magic meetup uh, at the Alchemist Bar in San Francisco. And what is it, Wednesday, uh, we're doing an event with Stream, um, I think at Mission Rock. And that's going to be a lot of fun. So we're going to be doing a recap of uh, Snowflake uh, and uh, Data and AI Summit, kind of drawing some comparisons between that, signing some books, getting some drinks. Um, so yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, there's a rumor I might be in Vegas tonight at uh, Ethan Aaron's uh, low-key uh, happy hour. I cannot confirm or deny. You'll just need to show up. So find out. So so, so you're the, the new uh, Bill Murray of data, I guess, right? <laughs> I don't know. I, I've taken more inspiration from every day. He seems like a cool dude. <laughs> so, are, are you going to be washing dishes in the back, Joe? I'll be bartending, actually. Yes. Uh, okay, no. okay. Wearing wearing a fake mustache or, or maybe a fake beard or looking like me or something. <laughs> exactly. So uh, yeah, that should be a lot of fun. But yeah, lots of cool stuff happening. Uh, you know, I think uh, everyone's trying to finally figure it out. Um, you know where. They're going to be uh, going to be at since, uh, you know, these vendors decided to have their conference in the same week um, on the same days. But it's what it is. So, but uh, yeah, awesome. Well, Andrew, uh, it's a lot of fun. Uh, next week we have, um, who do we have actually? Is it Andrew Jones on the show? I think uh, talking about data contracts, Matt. Let me just double check here. So, um, yeah, two, I think it's the, it's the, it's the uh, yeah, Andrew Jones. So it's the, uh, the two weeks of Andrew is here. So, um. Yeah, and he's uh, he's writing a book right now on data contracts, if I'm not mistaken. Is that right? Yeah, he is. Yeah. yeah. I, think he, I think he's the guy that came up with the term, actually. So as far as I can tell. Oh, that part I was not aware of. Okay, yep. this, should be, this should be a lot of fun. Andrew, well, Andrew Padilla, um, thanks for bringing up this idea. I, I mean, I love this conversation about having multiple data contracts. It's something I never really thought about. And so we'll probably yep. bring that up on the show next week as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, look forward to listening to that one. So, yeah. Great. Thanks, guys. I appreciate awesome, it. awesome. Yeah, thanks. Take care. Right. See the audience. Bye-bye. Yep.